You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I'm joined by Bob Muglia. Bob spent 23 years working with Microsoft, and he held a number of executive positions with the company, the last of which being his role as the president of the server and tool business unit prior to resigning in 2011. In 2014, Bob became the CEO of Snowflake, and he helped lead the company from zero to $200 million in revenue before parting ways in 2019. Bob recently released a book called The Datapreneurs, which explores how technology got to where it is today and where he foresees technology and AI going in the future. This episode touches on a lot of interesting topics, such as Bob's lessons from working with Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, what differentiates Snowflake from their competitors in the data warehouse space, whether Bob was surprised that Berkshire Hathaway invested into Snowflake's IPO, what the arc of data innovation is, when Bob foresees artificial general intelligence becoming a reality, what industries he sees AI impacting the most, what he looks for when investing in technology companies, what the future of online search may be, and so much more. Without further ado, here is my chat with Bob Muglia. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink, and today it is such an honor to be joined by Bob Muglia. Bob, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Clay. Well, Bob, we got connected because of the book you recently published called The Datapreneurs, which I'm holding up here for those watching. And as I was looking into your background, I'm thinking, man, I just have to get Bob on the show. You are really one of the builders and the visionaries of all these different technologies that are developing and especially AI and where all this is heading with all the companies you're involved with and especially your experience working with Microsoft and Snowflake. So I think a good place to start would just be to touch on some of your background. So could you please walk us through your journey of what brought you here today? Sure. So, I mean, it's interesting because when I was in college, I was sort of studied, I was a computer science degree at, at University of Michigan, and I sort of was focused on networking and communications because this was the early 1980s and I felt like there would be that would grow tremendously. And I joined my first, you know, when I was at Ann Arbor, was in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan. My first technical job was at a company called Condor Computer, which is in the late 1970s. It was an actual true relational database. It ran on an incredibly early microprocessor system called a Chromemco. It was this big box with large, if you can believe it, eight-inch floppy disks that held a tiny amount of data. It had just a tiny amount of memory in the machine, and yet it was a real relational database. And that's where I started building business applications with data. And then when I joined Rom, which is a communications company back in the 1980s, I wound up building business applications there and working with databases, some of the early networking databases that ran on PCs back in the early 1980s. And that led me to Microsoft. My wife and I actually had a desire to move up to the Seattle area. And um, she was the one who really found Microsoft. She's a Stanford MBA and a pretty smart cookie. And she was the one that spotted Microsoft in like 1985. And I joined Microsoft in, in early 88. My wife actually joined, you know, six months later and was there for five years. I spent 23 years at Microsoft. My first job was on SQL Server. I was the first technical person on SQL Server. We had a product manager and I was the, the technical program manager helping to work with Sybase, who actually built the product down in the Bay Area and helping to deliver it on PCs running OS2 at the time. Initially, it was running OS2 back in these crazy days. And then I wound up working at Microsoft doing a a series of real sort of startup kind of things inside Microsoft for really throughout the 1990s, staying on a business for like two years or so. I helped to build Windows NT and the Windows server business. I ran the early, early server products and actually ran the tools part of Microsoft, brought together Visual Studio. That was in 1996 when we first created Visual Studio and I was running it, the, the division at the time. Did a whole bunch of things you know, that were really solving problems at Microsoft, new problems, and then spent my last seven years uh, running the Server and Tools Group at Microsoft, which was Windows Server, SQL Server, 
system center and the developer tools, the developer tools products. So I brought that division to about 17 billion in revenue, nine to 17 billion. It was interesting back then. We never got mentioned. The server business was growing 15% a year constantly, just 15%, 12%, 18%. You know, we would never get mentioned in, in the earnings report unless something bad was happening in Windows or, or, or the office because they would always talk about those things. But you knew if servers was being talked about that it meant that, that they wanted to highlight something back then. I left Microsoft in 2011, spent a couple of years at Juniper, which reintroduced me to the Bay Area, and then took the Snowflake job in 2014, May of 2014, and, and ran the company for five years. Subsequently, since I left Snowflake in 2019, I've been working on boards. I'm on five uh, boards of small private companies. And I really, I really act as an advisor to CEOs, all the small companies, helping them helping them build their business model. Most We've got a lot of brilliant technical people out there, and yet they don't necessarily have the business side of things. And I picked all of that up. I mean, I was fortunate to learn at the hands of people like Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, who are as brilliant a businessman as I've, I've ever seen. And so I, I was able to help a, a lot of small companies as and their CEOs as they start to build their business. So that's what I'm focused on now. I mean, man, what a resume. 23 years with Microsoft, ended up being a president of one of their divisions there when you left in 2011 and then CEO of Snowflake for five years, which we'll be talking about a bit here. I was curious if you could share some of your takeaways and experiences and key learnings from working with people like Bill Gates at Microsoft. There's a ton, an amazing amount I learned from Bill and Steve. Bill is technically one of the strongest people I've ever met. He's a brilliant guy. Also very good with people and recruiting technical people. Bill has a great ability to build strong technical relationships with people. And that I think has really guided him on his career. And I think maybe, you know, if I look, if I want to say if there's one thing I learned from Bill, it's that, you know, building these relationships with people, the technical people is so critical. If you look at my career, I've mostly assisted brilliant technical entrepreneurs to build their technology and their product. It's really the, where the idea of the datapreneurs came from, this idea of data entrepreneurs. And even when I was at Microsoft, I had the recognition that I was working with data entrepreneurs while I was at Microsoft. And then, of course, subsequently have done so at places like Snowflake and the things I've done since then. But I learned an enormous amount about how to work with those technical people from Bill. Because I think Bill is about as good at that as anyone was. Although he could sometimes be, Bill can be pretty aggressive sometimes and sometimes relatively dismissive of people. I try and be respectful, a little bit more respectful than that. Bill's, one of Bill's, one of the things Bill is known for saying is that's the, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And he, he used that line so often it started to, it started to lose its effectiveness because it eventually you've you decided that once you've heard something's the dumbest thing you've ever heard a hundred times, it must not be that dumb. But from Steve, on the other hand, Steve is an incredible businessman, probably one of the most multidimensional smart mathematical thinkers I've ever I've ever seen. Steve could keep in his head a relative spreadsheet of the Microsoft revenues by product by country and have a really good understanding of that, a stunningly good understanding of that. Like literally to the point where, I mean, this is a notorious thing at Microsoft, is is there was this thing called the rev sum. It's a brilliant, brilliant idea. This idea that there's a, you know so much wallet, a share of wallet, and you want to understand what you're getting across all of your di different markets and things. And, and what Steve would do is he'd focus on key drivers like a socket, like a PC is a socket. You know, it's a it's a sell it's something you can sell into. So when a PC is sold, it's it's something that you could then you know Microsoft would earn revenue on on Windows, but there was also opportunity for Office and all sorts of other tag on products. And Steve would build these spreadsheets to have the finance build these spreadsheets that had all of the products and all of the regions and countries. And it would literally be this giant sheet of paper, this eleven by seventeen sheet of paper, which Microsoft loved. And there was twenty five hundred numbers on one piece of paper. I swear to God. And you would look at this thing, and Steve could, you know, Steve would get presented to this in a meeting and he would stare at it for about 30 seconds and he would go, this is all wrong. I know it's wrong because that number is wrong. And he would point to a number in the middle of this page of numbers, which I'm like, I could, to me, it was just all a bunch of numbers. I could barely see the thing. And at that point, the finance guy would start you know, losing these papers and there'd be a 10 minute period where there'd be a discussion about whether that number was wrong. And honestly, I swear eight out of 10 times Steve was right. 
and it may be real the meeting and it maybe it wasn't counterproductive even, but it still it created a, a, a set of expectations, if that makes sense, that everyone knew when you presented that spreadsheet to Steve that he was going to look at it. And if there was something wrong, he was going to find it. And it, it really drove the company in a lot of senses. My style is very different than that. I and mean, Steve could be very aggressive and sometimes disrespectful in meetings. I always tried to be respectful and things like that. But I do think that pushing people to do more than they, they expect they can do is an important thing. And that's certainly something that I learned from, from both of them. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think about what you said about Bill, where, you know, you look at many of these great companies and I think a key attribute, you look at Steve Jobs and Musk, they're just brutally honest people and they will just achieve what they want to achieve at all costs. So And difficult, frankly, they're all difficult. <laughs> okay, find one that isn't difficult. All these brilliant founders, Mark Zuckerberg, you think he's easy? Your know, Jobs was difficult. Bomber's a pain in the tail. I mean, <laughs> they're all fairly difficult, but it's part of what makes them what they are, really. In your book, you talked about how data is one of a company's most critical assets. Given that you've you know, been in this, we'll just call it the technology industry for so long, when did you realize you know, how critical data was going to be for companies and how has your opinion on that changed over time? I think really very early, you know, when I started working at Rom, even I was working on collecting data. You know, we were selling uh, PBX systems, business telephone systems. Rom built the first digital PBX, and, and which was very innovative back in late 1970s and early 1980s. And at that point, even then, we were collecting information about customers that we were having to put into these systems. So I recognized how important it was. When I joined Microsoft, I was I was focusing on collecting data and working on information with SQL Server, and SQL Server really did changed the industry in that it brought business computing to businesses of all sizes. If you go back to the early 1990s, most small businesses kept their books on pencil and paper. And that all changed largely because of the work we did at Microsoft with the, the products that we built that were specifically targeted at those industries, whereas most of the other companies were targeting larger, larger businesses. So, you know, I recognize that, that data had an ability to impact businesses of all sizes, certainly when I was at Microsoft working on SQL Server, but also because very early on, Bill started an initiative called Information at Your Fingertips, was really about using technology to gather business information and to be able to bring that to people. I mean, ultimately, it has turned into the, the actual implementation of it is turned into the internet and Google for all practical purposes, search. But, you know, that vision that Bill said in 1990, uh, which I do talk about in the book, it was very much a big driver of all of the things that happened. It was a big driver in shaping my focus on the importance of data. I also wanted to touch on a little bit about your role at Snowflake. To my knowledge, they sort of were operating under stealth mode for some period of time while they developed these products and services. And then they took those products to market once they were ready to go. So talk about how you ended up joining Snowflake in 2014 and how your journey with them, you know, evolved over time as they sprung out of this stealth, uh, the stealth mode. When I left Juniper in late 2013, I decided I was I wanted to work at a much smaller company than I had been working at. At Juniper, I had an amazing realization, which was that Microsoft, I was building new businesses all the time, and Microsoft was able to do that. And I realized that part of the reason it was able to do that is it had this cash cow called Windows and Office. It was throwing off a lot of profitability. I joined Juniper, and Juniper was had stagnated shortly after I joined, it wasn't growing. And I realized that it is almost impossible. I was trying to build a software business in a hardware company. And I learned that it was almost impossible to build a new business at a company that wasn't growing because there just simply isn't enough cash to feed both the primary products that are generating the revenue and to build these new businesses. And I wanted, I came to, and while many people love fixing broken things, and there's certainly a lot of, of joy that can come in that, I had seen a lot of that at Juniper. I was fixing a bunch of broken things. And I decided I want to build something new, which is what led me to small companies. And I started looking around. I was connected through, I had a contact at Sutter at Sutter Hill, which was the founding VC of Snowflake. And that created the connection that when I met Benoit and Terry. And when I first met with them, they, they had this, what they, they would do is the way they would interview people is they would ask them to do a presentation in front of a group of them. So I came in as a CEO candidate 
And they essentially asked me to talk about what I was doing at Juniper and some of the things I was trying to do from a pricing perspective there. And, and so I had a presentation that I essentially had to do in front of them. And then they talked to me about what they were building at Snowflake. And I recognized that although the product was early and it was still not fully functional, if it did the what they said it was going to do, that it would revolutionize the industry. That in fact, databases had always been limited in the number of users they can support and the size of data. And because of the architecture that Benoit and Terry had created with Snowflake, leveraging characteristics of the cloud, uh, which were not available before, because of the way the cloud works, it was possible to build a database that separated storage and compute and allowed those to be scaled independently, essentially letting you put in any amount of data you want and, and work with as many users as you want. I mean, remarkably, a single Snowflake system can scale to essentially any size. And the way they described what they were doing made total sense to me. And so they seemed like pretty smart guys. And, and so I decided to take a bet on, on the fact that they would make it work. And fortunately, that was a good bet. I recently had a guest on the show who is an investor and an incredibly intelligent guy. And I had asked him about what technologies today excite him. And the one thing you mentioned was just how much he loved Snowflake's products. So I'm curious if you could dive more into what sets Snowflake apart in the data warehouse space and what makes them so special and, you know, to allow them to create something that just isn't available in the market. I mean, I think it's a multiple of things, right? I mean, first of all, I think it's being at the right place at the right time. I mean, you couldn't build Snowflake today. It's just fact. You know, people are trying to introduce technologies that have characteristics like Snowflake. Good luck. You've got well-established players in the business, all of whom have a whole lot more money than you have if you're a small company. We were competing against companies that always had a thousand times more capital than we did. I mean, they had names like Amazon, Google, and Microsoft. And, you know, how do you compete with them? Well, you know, the answer is you have a better product. I said many times that if, if we were just a little bit better, like 20% better than Amazon's competing product, Redshift, we would have been totally wiped off the face of the earth. But in fact, Snowflake was effectively infinitely better because it, it solved problems that Redshift couldn't solve. We were also fortunate in the sense that I mentioned Redshift. Redshift is the data warehouse that Amazon built. Still, It's still available. It's a good product, always been a good product, but it doesn't scale. It was built using the, a more traditional database technology that was built in an on-premises environment, and it didn't have the cloud scalability characteristics that Snowflake had. And so what happened is that Amazon, in you know doing incredible work establishing the cloud and frankly, building a very good product in Redshift, what they did is they seeded the market for us. And customers who adopted Redshift, if they scaled and grew in size, they would need an alternative solution because Redshift's ability to handle large amounts of users or data was much more limited. And Snowflake turned out to be the answer. So we were able to move a lot of customers over. We were just, the product was a lot better than anything else. It could solve problems that nothing else could solve. And you know, I think the way we built it was in a way that was very friendly to customers. I mean, I give Benoit and Terry almost all the credit for building a phenomenal product. But I do take some credit in building a phenomenal company. And I feel very good about the values we put in place and the approach that we took. I always felt that in order for companies to adopt a product, they really want to like the company and want to want like working with the company. Um, I've dealt with so many difficult companies in my days that I realized it's such a breath of fresh air when you're working with companies that want to solve your problems. And we built into our values this realization that helping the customer succeed. You know, our first value, which we put in place was we put our customers first. And I learned that value from, honestly, Jeff Bezos, who I was fortunate enough to spend a small amount of time with when I was at Microsoft. And, you know, I realized how customer-centric Jeff made Amazon. And I wanted to make sure Snowflake was as customer-centric as Amazon. So, you know, we put our customers first. And, you know, in that value, the first line of that value is we only succeed where when our customers succeed, which turns out to be true from an actual revenue generation perspective, because Snowflake is a usage-based pricing model. And so essentially, we didn't get paid unless the customers used our product. And so we had a lot of reason to want them to be successful in using it. We were motivated to do that. They were motivated to do that because they wanted, they had a problem they wanted to solve. And we were in a good place to solve that. So 
you know, in addition to an incredible product, we built a very customer focused company and a very values based company. And that was important. Um, values were something I discussed in every team meeting I ever had. We put the values together about 12, 18 months after I got there. It was a bottoms up process. It started in the engineering team with some leaders in engineering and included a process that touched on every group in the company and people had an opportunity to contribute to that. When we had these values, we really embraced them and drove the company that way. The other thing I'll say is, is that Snowflake didn't try and solve every problem ourselves. There was so many, the, the space is so large. So, you know, we put in place a company that was very partner centric, that works with partners across the industry and does so very openly. And I'm pleased that that culture is still in place today. I think that came from Microsoft, myself and, and the, the head of product at Snowflake now, Christian Kleinerman's ex-Microsoft, bunch of ex-Microsoft DNA now in there. And Microsoft, in my opinion, is the most partner-centric company that the world has ever seen. So, you know, we learned there. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They're one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. That's Coriant.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. It's quite amazing to me how you and your team at Snowflake managed to convince the big tech players, the Microsofts, the Amazons, the Googles, convince these guys to work with you instead of heavily competing with you. I'm not so sure about that. They always competed at the same time. I mean, you know, it was always, and it varied. I mean, I had a horrible relationship with Amazon while I was running Snowflake, largely because of my past history with Andy. Andy and I had our first tangle when I was at Microsoft, um, Andy Jassy, who now runs Amazon. So Andy never forgave me for the years ago when he was building AWS and he wanted to license Windows Server. And, and I was happy to license him Windows Server. I just wanted to license it the way I licensed it to all my other customers. And he wasn't happy about that. So he do, I, don't think, I think that was there for a long time. And I was able to build a reasonable relationship with the Microsoft team when I was running Snowflake. And then as soon as I left, it totally reversed. And you know Frank built a good relationship with the Amazon team and Microsoft, the Microsoft thing soured. But the cloud guys have all, were always a little bit of a coopetition, and a lot of it was competition, to be honest. 
to my understanding, you still have a stake in Snowflake today. I just read that you unloaded some of your stake at the IPO. Would you consider there to be any major competitors to Snowflake today? Or what's your view on the competitive landscape? Oh, it's very competitive right now. You know, there are five, I always say this, there are five major data providers, data platform providers. Uh, you know, this is often called the modern data stack. You know, it's really this idea that you take, you know, you can consume data from any source. It goes into a cloud service. The cloud is, it provides you with the scalability and the flexibility that, that's there. And SQL is used to help cut, you know, to help work with data. So the modern data stack has become very pervasive. In addition to Snowflake as a platform provider, Databricks is another independent provider that is done quite well. Uh, they focus more on the machine learning side, less on the data warehousing side, but they're building data warehousing and Snowflake's building machine learning. So they're competing very fiercely with each other. And then there's the three cloud providers, all of which have viable products these days. Amazon has Redshift in their data product line. Google has BigQuery and Microsoft has built what they now call Fabric, which is an integrated set of, of data products. So they all have products that compete with Snowflake. I still think Snowflake's the best product in the market, but that's, you know, and, and Snowflake's ahead in a variety of ways, but it's a highly competitive space, which I think is great for the industry. I think that's a super good thing. And I think one of your jobs with Snowflake was to create that successful business model within the company. And one of the things I found interesting in that development is you didn't go the subscription model route. You ended up essentially the clients pay for what they use with the product. So how critical was this commitment and why was this the appropriate route for you to go? Well, it was the only route at some level, because when you move to a cloud platform like Snowflake is, you're paying, you have real cogs underneath you. So you have to have a, a model that is somewhat driven by usage. And the more directly correlated those two are, the better you off you are. So usage-based pricing had been in place previously. And in fact, Amazon uh, probably should be given credit for driving that with their, you know, with AWS, which is almost entirely a usage-based pricing model. Now, Amazon is an infrastructure as a service provider. And so their pricing model is very physical in its nature. You you are literally paying per computer you buy or the amount of storage you, you're using or the amount of data you're flowing across the network. All of those are measured and you're charged for their your usage associated with it. The biggest thing that I did at Snowflake when I put the pricing model in place was move away from a very physical base model to a logical model. So instead of saying, you know, a customer gets a warehouse that has four nodes in it, you know, we said that was a, a medium warehouse, I think is what that is. And so I went to t-shirt sizing on it where each warehouse size doubles the previous size, just like, you know, so small, medium, large, extra large. I think they go up to 6XL now. So it's, you know, it gets to very large clusters of servers that can work together. And you know, we created this idea of a credit which is a effectively, you know, a credit is an hour of usage of one of these nodes. But by calling it and creating it as an object, a virtualized object, it allowed us, it made it easier for us to discount it, easier for customers to consume it. And I very much wanted customers to think about Snowflake as a value-based service, not a physical service that you're paying for the rental of these hardware, because it isn't that. It very much is a, an application service, a platform service for customers. And so by moving to credits and this t-shirt sizing, it moved to a much more logical approach to describing things, which allowed us to apply a discount. You know, the biggest thing about a credit is it's a vehicle, it's something to discount that customers, you know, can, you know, based on how much they're purchasing, et cetera, you could give a customer an appropriate appropriate price. And so that's what put the whole thing together. It is now pretty widely accepted in the industry as a model, as a, a variation of the usage-based pricing model. There are a lot of details in there too, by the way. Like for example, you know, a customer buys $100,000 in capacity. They can use that capacity any way they want. They can use it for compute. They can use it for storage. They can use it in any region in the world they want. And when they run out of capacity, they go back to essentially book pricing, list pricing. They lose their discount. So the customer and the company are incented to do another uh, deal and purchase more capacity. And that model has worked very, very effectively. I had mentioned that you had unloaded some of your shares at the Snowflake IPO. And to my surprise, I was reading on, a, according to Forbes anyways, they said that 
it was Berkshire Hathaway that had purchased shares at the IPO from you. And I think people like to say that Warren Buffett purchased shares in Snowflake, but I, I think it's safe to assume that some of his colleagues did the research on that one and made that decision. And Buffett, he's generally had a bit of a distaste for IPOs and technology in general, as many in the audience know. You know, he thinks about things like the Wall Street incentives of trying to get the highest price at the IPO. So I'm curious if Berkshire Hathaway investing in Snowflake at the IPO, if that surprised you. I didn't expect it by any means, and it wasn't something I was directly driving. I didn't know that was happening. Um, I think it was great for the stock. I mean, it, it helped to really drive the stock up. I mean, I do think I feel a little bit bad. No, I feel a lot bad, not a little bit bad. I feel a lot bad for public investors of Snowflake because very few, if any, people have, have made money on, on Snowflake in the public market because you know it opened at a very high price and, and then it went up from there. You know, and it's subsequently down below its initial, it's below what its initial offering price was when this market first opened, I think it was 240 or something like that. So I, that to me is disappointing, but I'm, I wasn't shocked by what happened. The board very much wanted a big bang IPO. They got it. They got it. Problem is it's hard to maintain that afterwards. So transitioning to some of the ideas in your book, one of the great charts you included was what you called the arc of data innovation. So can you talk a little bit about this chart? It sort of shows the how you see technology, how it's progressed over time in the past and then in the future. So I'd love for you to paint some color around this. Well, I'm, you know, I've been in the industry for so long and I've been working with a number of the players for so long. I've, I think I've had a really, you know, unique viewpoint on how the industry has evolved. And what the arc really does is it talks about the key data innovations that have happened over really the last 50 years. And it describes key things that have happened, you know, 1960, it's more than 50 years, 19, you know, 1960s, the advent of, of static data or structured data and, you know, some of the early database products, relational coming out in the 1970s and then really taking off in the 1980s. We have text and internet and search, you know, appearing in the 1990s with semi-structured data coming from that, all the log files being thrown off by these business systems, these applications, web servers, that now you have the ability to analyze behavior. And, you know, then in the 2010s, the modern data stack making it possible for people to analyze that data at real scale. You know, I'd always seen an arc of data innovation and the book always had in it an arc of data innovation. But where I, my head was, was that it was all about driving, driving better decision making, the digital data economy, where the world is you know, today being driven by data. And that was the world I sort of saw when I started writing the book. And then in the 20 months or so that I spent writing the book, I watched how the industry was advancing in the areas of AI, these foundation and large language models. And I was sort of caught, like many of us, caught breathless by how fast things were going. And I realized that the arc had changed in that uh, this idea of artificial general intelligence, you know, a machine that is as smart as a human being. I have for my entire career believed that's where we were headed, that, you know, people were building and were going to build such devices. I've always believed that. But I thought it would be more like 2100 or 2050 when that happened. And I figured I wouldn't be around to see it. And now I think it's going to happen by like 2030. And I sure hope to be around by in that time frame. And, and, and so I recognized the horizon for progress had moved in considerably. And so the arc now changes and talks about things like artificial general intelligence and even super intelligence and beyond. Tapping into artificial general intelligence there, you mentioned that's technology that's as smart as like the median human, I believe you say in the book. Give or take. That's, that was Sam Altman's, that's one of Sam Altman's definitions and seemed like a reasonable one to me. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned originally you thought it was going to be, you know, far out into the future. What were some of the key things that led you to believe it's going to be coming much sooner, say 2030? Well, my first, I mean, I work with Microsoft and sometimes I get a preview on things that, that are coming at Microsoft. And I had seen in early 2022, the co-pilot work that the GitHub team was doing. And I found that breathtaking. I mean, I found that sort of breathtaking that this technology was writing a material part of the code for a programmer. And, you know, Microsoft believed that that number would be around 40%. And that seems to be holding true that when developers use 
Copilot that 40% of the code that they check in is actually written by Copilot, which is a stunning number. I mean, you know, you're talking about a massive increase in productivity of developers, which is one of the biggest gating factors to technology advancement is how fast can developers write code. All of a sudden, we have a very significant 30, 40% increase in capacity uh, from this technology. And that seemed pretty breathtaking. You know, and then I watched, you know, with the stuff that was happening with Stable Diffusion and the Dolly and the, the drawing apps. And then like the rest of the industry, I was just caught sort of breathless by how fast and how far ChatGPT has come. And so that made me realize the world is totally changing and changing at a, at a pace that's much faster than I anticipated. And the really, the remarkable thing about this is, is that for the first time, we have what you can think of as intelligence, the ability for a machine to make independent decisions that are not driven by logic that was created by a person. You know, programs are written by people and they're very logical in the way they do things. And that's the way a lot of artificial intelligence used to work, rules-based things. Now with these neural networks that have grown in very large scale, all of a sudden these networks have a type of intelligence that very is very similar to human intelligence in the ability to think through processes. It's not as advanced yet as human intelligence, and there's definitely missing elements, but the technology is able to solve problems that literally were unsolvable two years ago. And all of a sudden there's this vast set of problems that I've wanted to solve and I have companies that want to solve that. Now all of a sudden you can solve them. And essentially this idea that you can take any task, any process that people do and knowledge that is in people's heads on how to do that. And you can effectively bottle it and put it inside a piece of software and take that knowledge, that domain knowledge that you have and actually make it so that a computer can replicate that. I mean, it's a remarkable advance and it affects effectively everything. So it's an incredibly exciting time. One of the amazing things that sort of stands out to me is, you know, I look at the founding story of Snowflake and how they're in, in stealth mode and no one knew what they're what they're really up to. And, you know, today everyone's familiar with ChatGPT, but what we're not familiar with is all the things, the Googles, the Microsofts, the uh, open AIs of the world, what they're developing that they haven't released yet. Right. And we're in that period. We're in a waiting period right now. I actually feel like I, you know, there's Gartner has this thing called a hype curve. I don't know if your viewers, if your readers or your, or your listeners are familiar with this, but it is, is when a new technology is introduced, it goes on a hype cycle and it's it, sort of the curve goes up at a very fa at a fast pace of hype, 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 hype. And then the hype hits the, the peak of hype. And then it goes into what they call the trough of disillusionment where reality strikes. And, and in that period, you know, people become disillusioned about things. And then eventually it goes into a cycle of usefulness. And it, it has a, li a lifetime afterwards where people understand what really is possible. Well, the first six months of this year were the hype. You know, I've never seen hype like AI hype. It was the most fast hype, biggest hype I've ever seen in my career. And I think we actually hit the peak of that hype cycle sometime in early July. And I think we're now beginning to enter this trough of disillusionment as people are saying, okay, fine, how does this affect me? How does this affect my job and what I do? And we're waiting for products right now. And there's a chance that those first products might be a bit disappointing, which is what often happens that when first generation products come out. And so that's all part of that trough. And now that, you know, the hype cycle went as fast in, in AI as anything's ever gone. What's really going to be interesting now is how quickly do we go through this trough of disillusionment? I think the fall will have some disillusionment. But by the time in winter, will we begin to exit that and start to see real products that are solving problems? I don't know. We'll find out, won't we? I'm hopeful, but only time will tell. Mm -hmm. In real time, it, it sort of feels like it's going to develop slow. But when you look at the bigger picture, it's happening at a very rapid pace, as you've seen throughout your career and how the timeline is sort of shrunk with these technologies. I'd like to get your point of view on what industries you think will be most impacted by the advancement of AI. Well, I think that, you know, you hit on the real big thing, actually, which is the, the shrinking of timelines. And that's what's happening. And if you, you know, you talk about the, the trend in the arc of data innovation, it's actually been a, it's been a constant speeding up of how things move over time. If you look back in the 1970s and 1980s, you know, this was before email even, and information moved between people at a much, much slower pace than it moves today. So technology has sped up 
and the ability for people to work with and exchange data has constantly been increasing the pace of innovation. AI is exactly the same way. It will be a, a significant increase in the pace that innovation happens. And ultimately, it may continue to go faster than really we can even really understand. We'll see over time. You know, you ask about what industries are impacted. I think a bigger question is what industries are not impacted. And I can't think of any. I mean, every industry is impacted with this because if you look at, at what is behind every industry, intelligence is a big part of every industry. I mean, if you sort of see what's behind an industry, well, you've got labor for sure. So there's that, there's intelligence, and there's knowledge. Those are all elements of every industry. Well, we have computers have done an amazing job of storing knowledge. And that is really, you know, what is knowledge? Knowledge is data that has been analyzed and a conclusion has been reached. That's thought of as knowledge. And, you know, sometimes those conclusions are correct. Sometimes they're wrong. You know, society over time reaches what are generally believed to be correct knowledge conclusions. Often that gets encoded in things like Wikipedia. Sometimes it's right, you know, mostly it's right, occasionally it's wrong, but that's knowledge. So we've had knowledge. Now we have intelligence for the first time that we can combine with that knowledge to solve problems. And so every industry is, is, you know, is going to be impacted to some degree. What industries are the least impacted? Well, it looks like in the short run, the industries that are the least impacted are the ones that involve human labor in some ways. I mean, it's been said that the last, you know, we thought that the jobs that were going to be impacted in the short run would be, you know, drivers and things like that. Well, that may happen. Um, but in the short run, the impact is probably on information workers and how they work in their jobs. And the people that are cutting lawns and doing all of the tasks that are required in life are probably the least impacted in the short run. Now, that may change. I believe that that will change in the 2030s because the 2030s, I think, is the era of robotics. And that's where we will really begin to have robots live and work with us as a part of our daily lives, whether it's autonomous vehicles or robots that help us to clean the house or care for elderly people or cut the lawn. I mean, all of those things are going to happen. Some of that is a bit further away, though. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joints range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day -day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? 
Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. On this arc of data innovation, the last four parts I'm reading here is intelligent robots, humanoid robots, super intelligence, and then technological singularity. So I'm sure you've thought a little bit about sort of the end game of this uh, arc of data innovation. So I'd love to get your take on this as well. Well, you know, again, I sort of have always viewed, I mean, I start by saying that when I was a young man, I spent a lot of time reading Isaac Asimov in the early days and went through, he wrote over 400 books and which is ridiculous. And I can't say I read all of them, but I read a lot of them. I've covered a lot of Isaac Asimov. And so I'd always had in my head this idea that people would have developed intelligent robots that are machines that work and live amongst us because that's what many of Asimov's stories talked about. And I always believed that people would develop these systems that go beyond us. And in some senses, that's our purpose, is to build something that can take the next step. And again, I never thought I would see this. I thought this was all post my lifetime. And you know, now I see it coming closer. The idea of, first of all, you've got artificial general intelligence, which is essentially a machine that's as smart as a person. Super intelligence is when these machines continue to get smarter and smarter, where they're really smarter than all of us. That's the idea of super intelligence. And what's happening through this process, and we feel it and see it almost every day in our lives, is an increase in pace and innovation. Things are happening faster and faster. And that you know potentially will continue to increase. And if, in fact, we do build these machines that are very intelligent, that will continue to increase the pace of innovation. What a technological singularity is, is effectively a situation where machines begin to advanced science and technology at a pace that is beyond human capacity to really understand. And that's this idea that things go very, very quickly. Ray Kurzweil was the one who first brought this up many years ago with his book about about the singularity is near. You know, I've had a chance to meet Ray once in my life, and I um, think he's probably right about what he mostly wrote. He would tell you, I think it's a lot sooner than even he thought now. And so that direction seems to be happening. It may not happen. We don't know for sure. But to me, the real key is, is let's make sure that as we build these machines that may do be able to do things beyond us, that we instill within them the values that we think are important. I, I mentioned values earlier on. I can't stress the importance of this enough in building companies, in leading your life. But for goodness sakes, when you're building technology, the values of the people are imbued inside the service and the technologies that are created. And I can see these things. I know the values of Microsoft. I can see them inside their products. You can see the values of Meta inside Instagram and Facebook. You can see the values as much as they exist in Google inside the Google products. And so as we create these new things, the values that we imbue in them will be very, very important and will direct what they do. For those listening, what was the name of the title you held up there? Oh, it's the title. It's The Singularity is Near. He wrote this book. He wrote this book about 20 years ago, but he just released a newer version, a new book that updates this. You mentioned Asimov, and he's someone you touch on a lot at the end of your book. 
he sort of helps you shape your framework around the governance of these sort of types of intelligences. So can you talk about, you know, the role of Asimov? You think the role, some of his ideas are going to play into this. One of the, you know, pieces that are outlined in your book is what you call Asimov's law of robotics. So it's kind of a way of coding these things in a way where, you know, we can kind of control where this is all going to be going. You have to put this in perspective of this guy. I mean, he was, Asimov was a brilliant man. I think he was actually a prophet in the, in the sense that he saw things ahead of the, of where the rest of humanity was. In the early 1940s, before digital computers were invented, Asimov was toying with this idea of intelligent robots living amongst people. And as he began, and he was a science fiction writer, that's what he was. He was a very good one, but he wrote stories. They're all stories, right? Fictional stories. And he had this idea that unlike previous generations of people that thought of intelligent beings as Frankensteinian monsters, you know, that were created, you know, by man that proved that man should not create these things. I mean, that's essentially what thousands of years of history associated with humans creating super intelligent things or robotic sorts of things came from. Asimov, unlike all the previous that came before him, the writers that came before him, he saw these devices as machines that were created by people to serve people. And, you know, he recognized if you're going to have machines interacting with people, helping us with tasks, there needed to be some rules that they operated by. And so in the early 1940s, he came up with the three laws of robotics. The first law, a robot may not harm, may not injure a human being or through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. That's the first law and it, it dominates everything. The second law, a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law, so it has to follow orders. And the third law is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. So this idea that these these creatures would live amongst us, but following very directly these laws. And of course, you know, humans do not, right? We follow, we, we do what we do. And most of Asimov's stories about robots are actually all the stories are parables of how you live and work with robots where robots are following these laws and people are not. And, you know, so this idea, like, like what does it mean to not injure a human being or to have harm come to a human being. It's very vague, right? It's not obvious. Well, Asimov spent many of the stories talking about that and different types of harm and how that happened and how the robot would react following the laws. And so it's a chance to think through these issues because these are values essentially. And as we create these large language models and these intelligent machines, unlike Asimov's robots, which follow these laws, you know, because they were hard coded in their positronic brain, these are models that are very malleable created by people. And what they do will be dependent on what we tell them to do. And so it's very much based on values in, values out. And so I think the industry has recognized how important it is that these models operate with a high set of ethics and standards, and they will be built based on the values of people creating it. Now, since I wrote the book and finished the book, the thing that has changed in the industry that is an incredibly positive change is that in addition to having GPT-4 from OpenAI and Bard from Google and, you know, whatever, the big, big companies, we now are seeing open source models be introduced, which have very powerful capabilities, but can be used by anyone to do effectively anything. Now, some of those things will be not so good. People will do bad things with them. These models are tools, just like anything else humans have built. And every tool that people have built has been used for every possible purpose good, bad, and evil. And that's going to be true for these large language models as well. But because they're open, we'll also see lots of good things come from it. And I think the fact that there is a lot of innovation, you know, will allow us to stomp down the bad uses and focus on the good uses. That's the thing that's amazing about this. It's such a multi-purpose tool. I think we're really getting at touching on, a, I think a key player in this obviously is governments and regulators. I'm curious if you think that today's governments are taking appropriate precautions to safeguards against some of the potential downsides or in other ways, it, it almost feels like an impossible job. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on this as well. Well, when January was, when I was finishing the book, 
it was unclear how people were going to react to this. And I was worried that I didn't know how strongly people would react. I'm no longer worried about that. The, the volume has been as set to 11 since then, and every possible concern has been written. I mean, there's a new article every day. You know, it's all over the business press. The, the, it's in the New York Times. It's in, you know, Vogue magazine. It's everywhere. And so the concerns are, are very present. And there are valid concerns, and there are needs for some government regulation. You know, to me, a very good example of that is these deep fakes. You know, it was never possible to build a video of a person saying something that they don't believe. I mean, it, you could never really get away with that. You can now. I mean, these systems, it is possible to create a deep fake, which is pretty indistinguishable from an, you know, from an original. And it's while it's possible today, it's probably going to be trivial within a year or two. And, you know, there'll be apps for the phone that'll, that kids will be able to do it with. This is a potentially very dangerous thing. And we do need to make sure that laws prevent people from impersonating others without their consent or acknowledgement. You know, I don't have any problems with people kidding other people. You know, comedians have been, been mocking people for decades. As long as you say it was created by AI and you don't misrepresent it, whatever. But when you misrepresent it, I think it should be illegal. And that's an area where regulation is required. Some of these, you know, other concerns like of how these things get super intelligent, things like that, it's too far out to regulate. There's no way to regulate those things. It's just too soon to understand what the issues are. But as we begin to build real, as real products emerge from AI and capabilities appear, AI will be an incredible spamming device. You can use it to spam people. You can also almost certainly use it to block spam. So we'll see all of these things happening. And some of the laws like anti-spamming laws will apply directly because they're just a new tool people are using. But there are cases like perhaps with defakes where new laws are required. On the other hand, I think we should be cautious and not over-regulate because government can't possibly anticipate the way the industry is going to go. And you mentioned spamming. I think it's already an issue today. You know, just being in the... It was an issue before AI, uh, though, wasn't it? I mean, I got plenty of it before AI, it seemed like. so. But it'll get worse. It'll get yeah, worse. There's going to be sure. plenty of spam in the YouTube video for this conversation, even. So since we mentioned the uh, you know potential dangers of AI, I can't help but think of Elon Musk, who's been very outspoken about you know where companies like Alphabet are heading. And he was actually involved in the creation of OpenAI, which to my understanding started out as a nonprofit organization, but is now for-profit. And they also received a $10 billion investment from Microsoft. So I'm curious if you believe that Elon Musk or his companies play a role in the development of the future of these technologies and AI. They surely do. And he's investing, you know, he, he's investing actively in building artificial intelligence. You know, I think it's connected to his new X service that he's creating. Whether you, you know, like Elon Musk or hate him, he has a right to build his own solution around there. Just like Meta has their right and Google has their right and Microsoft and OpenAI have their right. And we'll see all these companies build things. To me, the great thing is now that we have these open source models. And by the way, I have to give Meta and Mark Zuckerberg incredible credit for releasing the open source Llama 2 model recently, which is really having a dramatic impact in the industry. It is. It does appear to be a, a really, really good model in open source and it's competitive with some of the frontier models from companies like OpenAI even. But what this means is that we're going to have every possible solution. You're going to have counselors that you know help counsel people that are AI counselors. Hopefully, we'll have all kinds of tutor tutor bots. I look forward to tutor bots that help to tutor young children. Lord knows our education system. I don't know that that's the answer to our education system. I'm not claiming that's the answer to our education system. But Lord knows something needs to be done to our education system, and and this might help. I can see ways where this could help. I'm not claiming it's a magic bullet. However, you know we will see. Like I say, psychologist bots, we're going to see answer bots. We already see some of those that answer questions. They do a pretty good job of that today, actually, a pretty amazing job in some senses. Uh, soon we're going to see action bots that do things for us, you know, like schedule a, a reservation at a, at a restaurant for us where we don't have to go through the process of doing it. Just tell it what to do and it'll do it. You know, these things are all going to appear and they're going to be from different companies. And Elon will have his bot. He'll have his X bot. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg will have his Facebook bots. So, and of course, Google will have theirs. And now lots of little companies will be there too. 
Given your extensive experience with Microsoft building out what all happened at Snowflake from zero to 200 million in revenue, now you're on the board of a number of different companies. I think it's fair to say you know a thing or two about uh, differentiating a successful technology business versus an unsuccessful one. So I'm curious if you could share some of the key things you look for for companies that you invest in in this space. Well, I'm not a traditional investor. Let me just start by saying that because my number one concern is actually learning and advancing technology in areas that I care about, not so much return on investment, although I I try and make investments that will have rational returns. I try and be rational about investments. So my focus is always on things that are, are new and cutting edge, that are in the data space, that are solving problems that couldn't be solved before. Like an example of a company I've been involved in is called Dakugami. It's solving the problem of taking business contracts and turning those contracts into data that can be actioned by an organization. I mean, today contracts are programs that are are interpreted by lawyers and executed by people. And over time, that program is going to be interpreted by AI and executed by computing systems. And Dakugami is playing a pivotal role in, in connecting those dots together. It's a classic example of a problem that could not be solved three years ago. I mean, it literally with the technology three years ago, it, it was not there. Now it's there and it's actually it's actually working. So to me, it's about innovative things that break new ground in data. And I know I'm looking at new ways that you can apply the relational model to both analytics as well as to operational applications. You know, and my investments in small companies fall into these categories. One of the key points that sort of stood out to me in your book, you talked about how, you know, everyone's aware that software is eating the world. And you had this quote, in the next 10 years, you predicted that models will eat software. Could you explain what you meant by this? So we've always built we've built software directly to do things. We Today, we write software very, very directly. And it's focused on you learn what something does, you write a piece of code that solves that problem. Where we're moving towards a world is where we create essentially a, a twin, a digital twin of an organization. And that is a model of the organization, what it does. You know, today, it's very difficult to create to do that. And, and software does it in a way, but it's very opaque and it's not structured in a logical sense. I think over time, the way we operate our business and run things will be to have these models that define what our business process is. And as we learn from that, that model will reflect what that business process does. All of these these machine learning and artificial intelligence things are models. They are a type of model that emulate and essentially are that that are emulating some physical thing and doing it in a virtual world. And you know those models are going to become more and more the software that we build. If you look it's happening already. The entire software industry is moving now this year to perfect models and to take these these language and artificial intelligence models and tune them, fine tune them for different applications. So instead of writing code specifically to do things, we're going to take these models that are general purpose models and apply them to solutions. And that's the new type of coding. That's the way the coding is going to work in the future. So models are going to eat the old way of doing software. Quite interesting. And I think a point that sort of ties into this is thinking about the investment and asset management industry. Many likely speculate that, you know, eventually software is going to take the jobs of many investment managers. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this. You know, I think investment managers are people that work with people and talk to them. So I don't, it's just like everything else. There's the software will make the job of an investment manager different for sure and maybe easier in some ways. But I think the human interaction is still going to be important. And I think that we'll continue to see that in in most industries. That in fact, this software won't replace people, it will augment what people are doing. That's the way technology has always worked. I think this is the way it's going to work this time. You know, that said, when we have technological disruptions, while it does create a lot of new jobs, it, it does impact people in their current roles. So some people will, you know, whatever, how the world changes, will change in a way that is difficult for some people to actually make the transition. So it has a human impact. And I don't want to I don't want to diminish the importance of that human impact. But in general, I think it will advance society and help things for people, including for investment managers, who I think very much play a real role going forward. I think another, you know, glaring questions in our audience's minds as investors with the rise of chat GPT is its impact on other business models, especially one like Google search. Google search is a business that earned over $162 billion in revenue in 2022. 
I'm curious if you believe this business model will be totally disrupted by technologies such as ChatGPT within the next, say, five, 10 years. I think search will be totally different 10 years from now than it is today. Let me start by saying that. I don't think search will be, you know, the way the Google is today with the 10 blue links and the zillions of ads, all the damn ads in front of it. So I think that that it will be disruptive in the sense that these answer bots are already very disruptive. I use an answer bot, which I've this one I'm an investor in called Perplexity that I think does a nice job of giving you good summarized answers to your questions with references to tell you how it got to those answers. And it, it avoids hallucination by working with current data. And I think they already do a better job than search for a lot of problems. Um, and I'm already switched, I've switched away from Google to those problems. Interestingly enough, where Google is still most useful is where you need the ads, where you want the ads. That's where Google is really particularly good these days. But other than that, some of these other things can solve a problem. You know, search is the most profitable it's the biggest and most profitable app on the planet. Let's just start with that. So in terms of, you know, you give the numbers, in terms of any app, nothing is bigger than that. It's the biggest it gets. And it was impenetrable. Google was impenetrable until now. I, you know, was at Microsoft, you know, we competed with using, we did and still, we did and they still do compete using with Bing. I watched us try and compete. It was one of the most heart-wrenching things to watch because, you know, what I learned from the leaders at the time from Microsoft was how just because of the way the industry is structured, it resulted in one big winner. You know, typically in an industry, you get a big winner, you get a, a winner that is the leader, but then you have three or four other companies that have material market shares as well. And, or at least two, like you've got, you know, Android and, and Apple, you have at least something like that. Search was really different because it just, it was a singularity. I mean, it turns out to be its own type of singularity where everything went to one vendor and the cost of running it was so high in different regions around the world that it was almost impossible to replicate that. And the only company that's managed to do a decent job of it is Microsoft. And that's because Satya just hung in there and did an incredible job of turning Bing from a money losing thing to at least being a decent business for Microsoft, not a great business, but a decent business. And then he hung in there for all this time until this new innovation came out, which changes everything. It's a total change. And it's the first time where Google is vulnerable. Now, will they be unseated? No. I mean, I don't predict that. I don't predict that because I predict that Google will respond and build you know, great products that take on this new paradigm. But I do predict they will lose share. I think they will almost certainly lose share. The other thing that's interesting is that where the behavior of people has been trained to go to Google, when we have these bots in front of us, I think we're going to be trained to go to them. So there may not just be one place you go, there may be many bots you talk to. And those bots will talk to search bots. So it may be that the portal is not the search, you know, is not the search browser in the future. It may be that whatever app you're working on. So the whole model has a chance of changing, but we haven't really seen that fully play out yet. I do predict Google will lose share, but I don't believe they'll lose their position as the leader. Yeah, that's one of the things I'm really interested in seeing is what Google's plan is going to be to reinvent itself, because I'm sure it's been who knows how long, but it's been a, probably a number of years where they've sort of seen this coming and they're, they're ready to uh, try and make that pivot to its reinvention. They didn't act very ready, though. They didn't act that ready. I mean, they, they got kind of caught flat-footed, didn't they? I mean, they really felt to me like they got caught flat-footed and they had all this technology. You know, the idea that Microsoft is leading Google in this is crazy. I mean, Google was so far ahead in AI. Everybody knew Google was going to be the winner. And somehow, because of open AI and some really smart moves on Satya's part, you know, it really changed some things. And I think it's good because it's a shakeup that the industry needs. In general, I think it's useful for a large numbers of companies to have access to this technology to build their own solutions. And now we know that's going to happen. Well, Bob, it's such an honor having you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. I highly encourage the listeners, if you enjoyed this chat, pick up Bob's new book called The Datapreneurs. Bob, before I let you go, please give a handoff to the audience on how they can maybe get connected with you or give the handoff to your book. Well, they can learn more about the book by going to thedatapreneurs.com um, and learn a lot up there. They got some, there's a bunch of links to other podcasts and things up there as well as some information about the book. And I hope that people enjoy it. And if they do, please leave a review on Amazon. So, Got it. Thank you so much, Bob. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to TIP. 
Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.